All right, who's hungry and excited for the word today? All right, let me just acknowledge up front, let me just say, feel free at any time to yell amen, to shout hallelujah, to shout and scream. It's perfectly acceptable here. Perfectly acceptable here. Oh, man, I love it because, listen, let me say this. When you approach the word, the word of God is the bread of life. Okay? There we go. All right. We're on to something here today. All right. The word of God is the bread of life. It is nourishment for our soul. To nothing else can it be said that would provide that nourishment other than the life of God that's in his word that feeds us. And so when we come to his banquet table, if we come ready and if we come hungry in our appetite, then we will be nourished it is my opinion, in a much greater way because of the level of expectancy and preparation to which we've come. We come here today in a gathering of together, two or more gathered together in my name, the assembling of ourselves, the worship, and this is a banquet table that's being prepared. But all of us must sit down and must feast upon that which is being offered. You can prepare your own banquet table every single day to sit down and feed and receive the nourishment that this word has to offer. What this provides in this setting, in this environment that's different than the banquet table you may prepare for yourself every day is the collective assembly of one another, the full body sharpening and with one another. And it also provides the teaching and the exhortation from those who are called in the church and in ministry to bring forth that teaching and deliver the word. So there, there's the need for all of that. There are multiple banquet tables, though, throughout our week we must be feasting from. And if we come hungry and come ready and prepared, God will satisfy our soul in a way that nothing else can. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. Amen. So we're in this message series right now, and uh, we're, we're talking about things that are yet to come. We're talking about the end times and things that are yet ahead that the Bible speaks of. And we are discussing it in a way that is being packaged, I, I hope, and it's my prayer, that it comes forward and it edifies and strengthens the church and all of us to live in a way that's empowered, to live in a way that is strengthened every single day because of the awareness, because of the knowledge and the faith in these things which are yet to come. You know, there are a lot of people who you'll meet Believers in, in the church, and there is a, a sense for a lot of people where there is a fear of death. There is a fear of death. Now, just to break that down a little bit, I understand in a lot of ways what goes on in those thoughts. Look, I do not want to leave my wife and kids. I love the life that I have that God's blessed me with with them. I, have, I don't want to leave and to depart from them right now. But let me say this, that when we understand the life that God has prepared for us in eternity and we see the fullness of those promises and we see the joy and the celebration and the perfection 
that is yet to come compared to the imperfection that we live in right now. By power of contrast, let me just suggest to you that no matter how great, no matter how wonderful, no matter how beautiful you find the blessings of this earthly life to be, and I pray that you do, it pales in comparison to the fullness and the glory that awaits you that is yet to come, the fullness of what you will step into and realize when perfection happens. And that is powerful. Because it changes the way that we live here today. It says there is always, the greater is always yet to come. And the enemy, when, when you know that, when you live from certainty in that place, the enemy cannot rob you and steal from you the joy and the happiness and, and the celebration that he wants to on any given day because you know this is not the end. This is not where it's over. No matter what happens, there is something beyond this life that's far better, far surpassing, and greater than anything I could ever experience or walk in in this time. We see the apostles lived from a place where they understood this, where they got this. Even Paul, he says something along the lines of, look, I really, I would prefer to go and be with Jesus right now while he was alive. But nevertheless, he says, it's better for me, it's better for you that I remain for a while because the will of God could continue to be done in and through his life and more could come to Christ. But there was this sense of he had it like, it's going to be way better when I go and I'm really ready to go now, but by God's will I'm here and still doing his work on this earth. And there was a power and a faith that he was able to live from to impact the church for God because he understood that. We must understand that. We must know that there is a plan for our lives that God has here on earth, but in eternity, that's a plan for a glorious, eternal reality that we will all step into. That's why we're calling this message series, That's My Story, because it's all of our stories. If Christ lives in your heart, it's your story too. And I want to attempt to unpack, to open up the realities of this story from the word of God in a way that feeds your soul, that encourages and nourishes you and strengthens your faith for daily living. Amen? So where we stopped last week is we, we got to the end of this period of time of seven years known as the Great Tribulation. And at the very end of that seven-year period. You'll have to go back and listen to the other messages because there's just too much in there to unpack now. But at the end of that seven-year period, known as the day of the Lord or the second coming of Christ, which culminates in the battle of Armageddon and the destruction of all of the unbelievers who are on the earth at the time when Christ returns. And then at that point, there is an event that unfolds that that speaks about the binding of Satan for a 1,000 year period of time. So let me try to like paint this picture for you. Time has existed ever since God created it. Now he is outside of time because he was before and he is after. He's the alpha, he's the omega, he's the beginning, he's the end. We live within time and there's this period of time from creation up to Christ in the Old Testament or prophetic era and then there's this time from the birth and resurrection of Christ until he returns, which we are in, known as the church age. That ends at a period in the future that 
is when Christ returns and the day of the Lord happens and Armageddon unfolds. And then there is an event that happens that transitions into an era or an age known as a 1,000 year age or referred to commonly as the millennium, as the millennium. And so one of the things, uh, let's just do this. Let's go there in, in the book of Revelation chapter 20 right now and we'll just quickly pick up from where we left off last week with this binding of Satan for a thousand years. Verse 1. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. Notice that the angel possesses the key, that heaven holds the key to the pit. And a great chain is in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years are finished. And after these things, he must be released for a little while. So that last sentence about him being released for a little while is, is quite mysterious in terms of the purpose behind all that. But we'll get to that a little bit later. For right now, let me just focus on this. It, after Armageddon, all the unbelievers have been destroyed. You remember that? The angel sinks his sickle into the earth. The wheat is harvested. The good wheat, which is the, the righteous, are harvested. And the, the chaff, which is the unhealthy uh, part, the unuseful part of the plant, is tossed into the furnace where it is burned. And so that is a, a symbol of all the unbelievers being cast into Hades, into Sheol, into the pit, of the underbelly of the earth, which is a place of hell. And it says here that, God, that the angel comes down now and he binds Satan and puts him in that pit in the underbelly of the earth for a thousand years. So at this point now, all of the unbelievers since the beginning of time who died in rebellion and unbelief, not in faith, they are all in the pit in Sheol and Hades in the underworld right now, the under compartment of the earth awaiting a time that is yet to come where they will actually go to the final destination, which is the lake of fire. We know from last week that right here at the beginning of the thousand years, for some reason, that God actually casts the Antichrist, who is the influencer during the tribulation, and his false prophet, he casts the two of them into the lake of fire at the beginning of the 1,000 year period of time. So they are the first two entrants into that place not something I want to be first at okay so they're there Satan is bound in the underbelly of the earth with the rest of the unbelievers since the beginning of creation that died and went to that place their departed spirits and then those who were alive on the earth at Armageddon who were destroyed their spirits went there too so now they're all in the underbelly of the earth in this place of Hades of hell and the thousand year period begins to open and unfold. Um, verse 4. It says, And then I saw thrones, and they who sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. 
and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. All right, so let's pause. So during this thousand-year period, Satan is bound, which is significant because now that ceases his ability which has been the case up until now since he was thrown from heaven, which is to walk to and fro on the earth and bring destruction and to devour and to destroy the things which God has created. God has created all things and beautiful, but Satan's objective, because he can't create, only God did, is to take that which God has created and taint it, to corrupt it and to bring evil to it, to destroy the beauty and the works of God. That could be said of all the things God has planned for us in our lives, right? So during this thousand-year period, Satan is bound and with his demon forces. So there's no longer this ability that he has to roam the earth to and fro and to inflict harm and evil upon God's people and upon the earth. And so that is significant. We'll talk about some of the characteristics of the earth during that period because of that here in just a moment. But let me point out that it says here that they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Who are they? Well, a few verses before this, it speaks about those who are beheaded, which simply means to die a martyr's death. So during the tribulation period of seven years, while the Antichrist is reigning, we know that there are some who will be converted because there is great revival that happens during the tribulation period. There will be many who are converted coming to believe in Christ and will end up ultimately dying for their faith. They'll be forced to choose to take the mark of the beast and worship him or to stand strong for their faith. And if they do, they will be martyred. And those martyred souls join with Christ in the air along with all the Old Testament saints who have died since the beginning up until Christ and then the New Testament which is all of us that are a part of the church age who die believing in Christ are also there but now you have along with it the martyrs those who have died during the tribulation and now their spirits go to be with Christ in the air all are set to reign with Christ for this thousand year period of time also one other group that I'll mention which we are unclear exactly on the timing of this event but are those who have been raptured or who have been caught away in the way the Bible explains it, who've been caught up into the air, into the sky, whose spirits join with Christ in the air. Now, I talked a lot about how the timing of that is unclear to me. Uh, I spoke of that last week. There's people who believe the rapture happens in the beginning of the tribulation, some in the middle and some in the end. Um, it's difficult to ascertain, I think, from the scriptures exactly where that happens. Let me say this. Wh however it occurs, it, it doesn't change the outcome of your eternal condition. It does not change the outcome of where you and I spend eternity, regardless if people differ on that viewpoint right now. We need to learn to come together and unite around essential truths that are imperative to our doctrine and our theology and our faith and not be divided or divisive about the things that perhaps are less clear that are not essential to our salvation and eternal condition. Does that make sense? We, that's the approach the church always needs to have. The Bible speaks of in Ephesians how we are to contend for unity, that if a church that's unified is the church that actually expresses the, the image of Christ appropriately. One that's disunited, disunified does not. And so that's our heart here. So we have the, those who have been caught up in the air are there, the martyred saints, the New Testament saints, and the Old Testament saints, all set to reign with Christ for 1,000-year period of time. 
Let me see one last thing about the catching away. Uh, it's a pretty amazing, miraculous thing that we see, the way it describes it. We're just here one moment, gone the next, just caught up in the air. But did you know that it's not so crazy because it actually has happened, something similar, I should say, has happened on two other occasions in the Bible. There are two other men who were actually caught right up into the air. They were here and then gone, and God took them right up into heaven. And the two were Enoch. The Bible speaks about Enoch in Genesis, about how he walked with the Lord, and about how, you know, at that time, this was before the flood, people lived to be like a 1,000 years old. And Enoch was like 300 and something. So he was like a young chicken, right? Um, he was a young pup. And at 300 and something years old, the Bible says that all it really says is Enoch walked with the Lord and then God just, God just took him. He just caught him. He's like, gone. I mean, praise God to be that close to God. Like you just like literally pass right through, right? I mean, it's amazing to think about. Well, then Elijah, the prophet Elijah, we know in the books of Kings and Chronicles that he, when he was at the end of his life and his successor, Elisha, was getting ready to take over, that Elijah went out into the wilderness and Elisha followed him to see what would come of him. And he went out and at some point, God just took him from the earth. And Elisha looked upon the clouds and saw chariots of fire that were leading him right up into heaven. Praise God, that's pretty miraculous. There's two people who were just caught up in the air at one point in time uh, in the Old Testament. So this event of the rapture and catching away isn't all that crazy to think about when you see that things like this have already happened. So now we get here, we're uh, at the point where the saints are reigning with Christ for a 1,000 year period of time. Verse five says, but the rest of the dead, that is all of those who are in Hades, in hell, the rest of the dead did not live again until the 1,000 years were finished. Right now, this time, is the first resurrection. So when Christ returns and all are gathered together in the air, and we taught on this in depth last week in 1 Corinthians 15, that there's an event where we receive new bodies, spiritual bodies. Our spirits are actually united to a spiritual body which is prepared for the environment of eternity and all that which yet awaits us. These physical bodies here are created with a beauty and a glory, but prepared for this earthly life nonetheless, which is a temporal and perishing one. And so these new bodies that we receive in heaven are eternal and suited for the condition of eternity in heaven. Kind of a mystery. Paul even refers to it that way as being mysterious, but that's what we can, we can discern from that. Um, so the point is, is that, that that moment when Christ returns and we're joined to our spiritual bodies is what the Bible refers to as the first resurrection, the first. But then he says that the second, uh, well, he didn't specifically say second resurrection, but he says the rest of the dead will not live again until the end of the thousand years. And then he goes on to say, listen, in verse six, blessed and holy is he who takes part in the first resurrection. Meaning, that's the one that you want. That's the one you want to be a part of. Because over such, the second death, you can put that up there, verse six. Because over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So he speaks of a first resurrection and a second death, which we can infer there is a later resurrection. What that actually is, and we'll get to this a little bit later down the road, is that those, 
all those unbelievers, the dead who await in Hades, the end of the thousand year period, will experience the second resurrection, which just like our spirits need to be united to a body that's prepared for our eternal condition, we receive those spiritual bodies suited for heaven. All those in the underworld who will, at the end of the thousand years, they will experience the second resurrection where they will get their new bodies is, which are suited for and prepared for the eternal condition of the lake of fire. Uh, because the spirits do not just get annihilated. They don't just cease to exist. There's actually eternal torment, torment damnation, uh, fire, and brimstone. So the bodies are created to be able to sustain that for all of eternity. It's pretty powerful imagery to think about. Um, but he says, blessed and holy is he who takes part in the first resurrection because the second death over which has no power. So the second death is, you know, we all ex experience physical death. Our bodies die and go into the ground. That would be considered the first death. But the second death is spiritual death, which is when the spirits are cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity with their new bodies. And that is considered the second death. And it says very clearly that those who take part in the first resurrection, the righteous saints who receive their heavenly bodies, will not experience the second death, which is to mean eternal separation from God. We will not experience in, in that if we know Christ. We experience the first death when our bodies go into this earth, but not the second, which is where the spirits are cast into the lake of fire ultimately and, and spend eternity apart from God. That is what is considered spiritual death, is being apart from God for all of eternity, which might as just suggest to you, hard to kind of grasp this, but is a far greater, far worse outcome being apart from the presence of God than having the experience of eternal torment, weeping, gnashing of teeth, and the fire and brimstone that's there. It's the separation from God that really is where the torment comes from, okay? The Bible even says that in this time that every knee will confess, or I'm sorry, every knee will bow. Your knee doesn't confess. Your knee bows. Your tongue confesses. But it says, it says that all of you are in heaven, all who are on the earth, and all who are under the earth. There are no unbelievers left when the age and the era transitions. There will just be regret and remorse for those who've chosen not to receive the saving message. There will be none who don't believe. Every tongue will confess and every knee will bow because Jesus will be seen for who he is. Okay? Um, Powerful stuff. Blessed and holy is he who takes part in the second resurrection over such the second death has no power. So let's talk about now this thousand year period. Now, I will tell you that there are two kind of popular views on this. And differently than the way I describe the rapture, I have a, one of these that I feel more compelled by. Um, but, you know, neither of them can entirely be like refuted I guess based on the way scripture lays all this out the first view which is called premillennial view fancy titles for all this stuff but premillennial suggests that the thousand years is an actual period of time it is a real thousand years this is a real event that takes place and this is a, a real thing that happens on this earth here that we are on after the destruction that happens through the tribulation period afflicts the earth with the earthquakes, tornadoes, and all that. 
Uh, so that it's a real thousand-year period where Christ reigns and we rule with Christ on this earth. The second view, which is called amillennial, is it, it believes or says that th that's really just symbolic. It's, it's actually figurative. That thousand years can just mean a long amount of time, which it, it can, okay? Uh, and that that refers to the time between Christ's first and second coming where it's in the process of being fulfilled and that reign with Christ is actually happening through the church now where we're reigning more spiritually because the kingdom of heaven is in us and we're, we're ruling from that place here on this earth, which is, that is all true. But what that does is it suggests that there's not an actual 1,000 year period of time after Christ returns where there's rain on this earth. Now, I believe that there is because there's so much in the Bible in Revelation and in other parts of the book where the Bible I'm going to talk about today that seem to describe in great detail elements of this period of time. Um, but I would never, again, divide with anyone around a difference of opinion regarding this particular subject. Agreed? Everybody with me on that? So um, we go into this thousand-year period, and we know that Satan is bound, and there is this great time of peace upon the earth. And even though all of this destruction from tornado or from earthquakes and fires and cosmic disturbances has essentially just quenched the earth in fire and fire and burned it up, that through that thousand year period, we know that a new type of vibrancy, a new restored state of fertility would emerge because it happened when the flood occurred during the time of Noah. And the earth was destroyed by flood. And then after the waters subsided, the earth began to bear fruit again. And the animals began to repopulate. And there was fertility and there was abundance. And the only difference in the condition of the earth that we'll see during the millennium versus after the flood is that now in the millennium, as you recall, I just said, Satan is no longer operating. He is no longer walking the earth to and fro, inflicting harm and inflicting pain. So if you could go to your Bible in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. We'll see a little bit of the way that this, this time is described. Verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. So notice the language there's no threat of harm there's no threat of evil of destruction can i just make a side point notice that there are children in the heavenly city the bible speaks about this also in zechariah 8 5 that there are children running through the streets of heaven i get that question a lot what happens with children that's a that's a subject it's hard to tackle but let me just say that the Bible does speak about in several places children in the heavenly city and our God is merciful 
And he, I, I don't believe with anything in me that if a child passed before they're at the age of making a decision for Christ on their own, that he would allow them to perish. That's purely conjecture on my part, purely theory based upon things I see in the Bible. But that's how I would explain that and describe that to people when they bring that question to me. It's a tough one nonetheless to tackle, I agree. But we see that there is no harm, no threat of harm. There is this blanket of peace that is covering the earth during this time. And during this period, the saints and Christ will be reigning from, if you subscribe to the millennial view of being the real thousand years, will reign from the actual location of Jerusalem in Israel where was the original promised land that God gave to his people. Okay, so... That is significant because it begins to make a lot of sense as to why this area in this region has experienced such turmoil and so much fighting over thousands of years because it's ultimately where everything began and it's ultimately where everything will conclude. That there is an actual reign of Christ with the saints where, the, if you will, the capital politically, religiously, economically, whatever, will be right there in the city of Jerusalem and the reign of Christ with the saints will extend throughout the rest of the earth from that city. Let me show you. This is mind-blowing stuff. Go to, first of all, Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse uh, 17 and 18. I apologize if I'm slow. It's a lot of, my book is, Bible's small. Um, okay, verse 17. It says, At this time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of God. The throne to which the reign is extended. And the nations shall be gathered to it. So there is this sense of all those, the nations and all those who are reigning with Christ on the earth are being gathered to and are, this is like the capital city of the reign over all of the earth. All the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts, because there is no evil left. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north and to the land that I have given them as an inheritance to their fathers. So let me try to quickly break this down, but... The land of the north and the land in the south of Israel will gather together. This is very significant to describe this end time period because the original nation of Israel, God's people, later on uh, after David and after Solomon, they divided. The kingdoms separated and the kingdoms to the north uh, ended up, which ultimately was referred to as Israel, began to worship idols and to turn away from God and the nations of the south, which were the, uh, a couple of the tribes, one being the tribe of Judah, which is why sometimes you re refers to the city being Judah, uh, was the south. And that was where Jerusalem is, the capital of Israel. And the reason that that's significant is saying that in the end, the northern and the southern kingdoms will be reunited, meaning the full 12 tribes under Jacob, the full 12 tribes of Israel, the fullness of God's people will be restored to one and there will be one God and there will be one people. Also, what will happen is 
the non-Jews, which are us referred to as the Gentiles, are also grafted in, the Bible speaks about, through Christ's blood. That's why it calls it a new covenant. So the reign of Christ on the earth with all the saints will include all of the tribes of Israel and all of the saints of the New Testament church, which are referred to as Gentiles, being grafted in together. There is one church, one God, and one people. Now, despite what we see in this world today and have for many years, where there are fragments and factions of denominations, that we have different ethnicities, different cultures, and, and unfortunately that's created in a lot of ways more division than unity. Make no mistake, the picture of heaven and the picture of eternity is a united picture where there is only one God, there is only one people, there is one church and it's one reign. And we are all united in Christ by his spirit. Praise God for that. Differences in color, differences in ethnicity, culture, language, denomination will cease to exist. Praise God because we need him to help us get beyond that. And that's what heaven's going to look like. And so they're ruling from this, this place in Jerusalem. Now look at this in Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14. It speaks about, again, the rain from the heavenly city. Verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name is one. There you go, what I just said. And all of the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up, listen to this, and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. The people shall dwell in it, meaning Jerusalem, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Listen, side note, we're taking a trip next year in March to Israel. Uh, we're hosting this. There's a lot of people that are coming from our church and then other churches. I just wanna say if there's any way that you could ever take this trip. It's a life-changing trip. Uh, I would encourage you to pray about it and look into it. There's details on our website. But these areas are of great significance, historically and prophetically. And Jerusalem is at the heart of all of that. And so in this place, he's saying that they will uh, safely inhabit Jerusalem. But notice how he says that the land shall be turned into a plain around Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be raised up. Listen to this. So, I'm excited, because I know where I'm going. You don't know yet, but it's good. All right. So, uh, recently, well, not really recently, like six, seven months ago, we discovered that Katie had lost her wedding ring. It's happened before. Um, and it always turns up, you know, and she takes it off, or the kids get it, and, and it always ends up popping back up. Well, this time it hasn't. And it's been like six or seven months. And by now, if it was going to be found, it seems that it would have been found. Um, which is really perplexing for me because when we go into restaurants or into places and I'm wearing my wedding ring and I got all these kids and here comes this young lady with no wedding ring on and people start looking. It just doesn't look good, okay? So I've been kind of on her about it. And... Uh, but we love the ring that she had. It was very unique in the way that it was made. And so we decided we're going to just file a claim in the insurance, homeowner's insurance and see if they can replace it, recreate it or whatever. So I'm describing 
this ring because you know I'm a jeweler, right? <laughs> so I'm describing this ring. I got no pic. I got like one picture and no paperwork on it. So I'm, but I was pretty. I, mean, I was pretty into it, you know. Like, well, you know, I was explaining this all. She's like, "Wow, you're really good, detailed at this." I'm like, "Yeah, you know." Anyway, so the ring, it, it comes up, and the band sort of comes together, and then where it would meet, it crosses, and they go alongside of each other, and then it it, it kind of turns and comes straight up, almost like a U. And then this beautiful diamond is setting right in between, but there's no prongs or anything. It's what they call the pressure mount. And so the diamond is just like suspended between these two sides of the band. And there's these real beautiful baguette diamonds going down each side too. I know I'm a great husband. You don't have to say it. Okay. Uh, and, and, and there's this diamond, this beautiful diamond, and it, it looks like it's just suspended in the air. And it's just sitting there. And, you know, like, I, I, I don't want a different ring. That's the one we really love. I've never seen anything like it since then. So I'm describing it, and thankfully they, can, they think that they can recreate it and, and replace it. Well, anyway, after I was done describing this with such eloquent detail, as, <laughs> and I was done, I was like, I started thinking about these verses in Zechariah 14, where it talks about a plane is created around Jerusalem. Well, we know that the topography and the geography is leveled and changes around the holy city as a result of all of the destruction that's happening on the earth. But in the midst of everything getting leveled and a plane getting created, Mount Zion, the holy mountain in the holy city, which is Jerusalem, the capital of God's land for his people it says it is elevated up it's almost like i can picture like this precious diamond that's just elevated suspended in the air and everything else is leveled around it and we see this holy city where god's reign is happening from coming out of there over all of the earth isn't that beautiful beautiful and listen to this in micah chapter 4 verse 1 it says Micah chapter 4, verse 1. I'm sorry, you can put it up on the screen. Ah, it's breaking my flow. All right, here we go. It says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the tops of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come up and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and he, we shall walk in his path. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Gathering together. It's just this important significant place where the reign of the saints and Christ over the earth is flowing and extending out of that listen to this the Bible refers to in John uh, I'm sorry in Matthew chapter 5 verses 34 and 35 you can go ahead and put that up there it refers to the heavens as God's throne the earth as his footstool and the city of Jerusalem as its capital think about this for a second blow you away heaven is God's throne the earth is his footstool footstool 
and the city of Jerusalem is the capital of the rain where it extends from. Even Isaiah said this in chapter 66, verse 1. He said, the heavens are God's throne and the earth is his footstool. He said, don't you love how the old and the new tie together like that? Listen, why is that so powerful? I'll tell you. Because in Zechariah 14, where we were just reading from, a few verses earlier, it speaks about the day of the Lord. And it speaks about his return. And it says that there is a great earthquake and that the earth is ripped in part into, and from north to south, the Mount of Olives is separated. The plain begins to set forth. And it says that Christ's feet come and stand on the Mount of Olives. His throne, his footstool, and his feet positioned right on Jerusalem, the capital. Isn't that beautiful? And his reign extends through all the earth. And we are there reigning with him and united with him in that time. The Bible says in Revelation 19.15 when it speaks about Christ's return. It says that he will rule the nations of the earth with a rod of iron. You see, this is the reason why this actual 1,000-year period is so compelling. Because so much of the prophecies that speak about the rain speak about a physical rain. Along with the spiritual rain. But it speaks of an earthly physical rain. Right? And the Bible said that David... It says that his kingdom through his descendants will be established forever. His throne and his kingdom was in Jerusalem, the capital city. The Bible speaks about Jesus. He even refers to himself as the son of David or the descendant of David because he came out of the lineage of David. Isn't it amazing that the throne of David would be established forever and the way that we see the Bible describing the thousand-year period is that Christ returns, that Jerusalem becomes suspended as a capital city and Christ's feet are resting on the Mount of Olives olives and we are all flowing to that and the throne of David in the lineage through Christ is established forever in all of eternity after that it will never cease to exist from that point on and folks all of the covenants the 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 renewed and restored covenants throughout time all become fulfilled in this moment and in this period of this era you have the Abraham covenant God promised Abraham the promised land, the land, the physical geography, the land for his people, also symbolic to a spiritual inheritance. But there was a physical promised land. That's the land that is possessed and that Christ and the saints are ruling from when he returns. And throughout all of the earth, it would extend to all of the earth. That's the cap. So you have the covenant with Abraham that is completed in fullness. The covenant with David that your kingdom, the, your throne shall be established forever through your descendants. Now Christ is the head and it's his throne and we are ruling with him and it will never cease to exist. It's a physical type of reign on the earth at that time and that covenant is fulfilled in fullness. And then the new covenant, which through the blood of Christ, all those who are not a part of the Jewish faith, this was never foreseen by the Jews prior to Christ and prior to Paul teaching about this, but those who are not of the Jewish faith of, the, of that nation are referred to being grafted in by the blood of Christ to become rightful heirs to the same inheritance that God has promised his people all along. 
All the covenants are fulfilled in this period and in this moment. The reign of God through the promised land, the throne of David, and the new covenant with all of us that are the Gentiles being grafted in with the full inheritance and the promise which is yet to come. Powerful stuff. And then ultimately, through this thousand year period, which we will get to next week, at the end, there's this point where Satan is actually released out of the pit. Uh, and it's, it's kind of mysterious as to why that happens, but we'll attempt to unpack that next week along with the outcome of all those who are in the belly of the earth at that point in Sheol that end up going to the lake of fire. That happens after the thousand years. But there's also a point at that time where this earth that it, we've been reigning from that has, was kind of destroyed by fire and has regrown, that, that earth, it says that the heavens and the earth will pass away. So there is a new heaven and a new earth that is created at that point. And it is absolutely remarkable the consistency with the description of the new heaven and new earth as it is to the description of the Garden of Eden. River of life, tree of life. It's amazing. We'll go there next week. What's also remarkable is that the city of New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven over the new earth is consistent in the way it is described dimensionally as the exact description, if you will, on a smaller scale of the temple that God instructed Solomon to build in the Holy of Holies that was in that temple where the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God would rest. And guess where it was built? On Mount Zion, the original location of the temple in Jerusalem. And that's where the city's coming down when the earth and heaven pass away and the new earth and the new heaven come to pass. I mean, to the point where they're both described like a cube, same dimensions, length, width, and height. They're both overlaid with gold. The presence of Lord fills the places. It's amazing. You just gotta come next week. Okay, all right. So, listen, I wanna close by saying this. This is all, to me, fascinating. It's amazing, but it's, it's, it's more than information, folks. It's more than something to impress people with. This stuff is the description of the eternal outcome for all of us, believers or unbelievers alike. It answers a lot of questions, but it also is intended. Why would God give us all of this? Certainly not to create division, ambiguity, or confusion. God is not the author of confusion. God has given all of us these words in his book, the book of life, because they are part of the bread of life that is meant to nourish our souls. And I'm going to go back to the beginning of when I opened this message where I discussed that we have a plan and we have a purpose and that each and every one of us are meant to play a part in God's overall plan for humanity, which is a plan of redemption and restoration. And we carry with us the only hope that a lost and dying world has to change the eternal outcome from one of condemnation in the lake of fire to one of hope and glory in the heavenly city. That message lives in each and every one of our hearts. 
It's transformative. It brings new life to those things which were dead. The Bible says, Behold, all things have passed away and all things become new. God has a new life plan for every one of his creation and we carry the saving message, the hope of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, which is the entryway, which is the point of coming into that new life that God has called us in. We have a mission, we have a mandate to live in a way that reflects that message and to carry that message into whatever part of our world that God is leading us into. We are not passive. We are not apathetic. We are a church on a move. We are the church, the body of Christ, on the move in our generation this day to bring salvation to the lost and hope to mankind. The glory of what awaits us will encourage your soul, will strengthen your faith, but make no mistake, it should mobilize you in a mission to see people one to Christ. That is God's paramount objective, to populate heaven with as many people who will hear and receive the saving message of Christ.